Hi, Sarah Hepler. Hi, Nancy Rommelman. You're not across the table from me anymore with the, um, when I had my little battery operated candles and you looked exactly like Amy Adams in the candlelight. I kind of look frighteningly like Amy Adams. I once sent a picture of Amy Adams in that, dressed in a spacesuit um, in that movie out, whatever it's called. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I sent it to my dad and I <gasps> said, look at this picture of me. And he wrote back, why are you in a spacesuit? I love it. I love it. Hey, good morning. Um, hey, I told you uh, yesterday when we were texting that the first thing I wanted to do on this podcast today, this episode, which is episode number six, I believe, was to say thank you to all the people that came and um, followed us and subscribed yesterday on our brand new Substack podcast, etc. Called Smoke Them If You Got Them. Um, we really appreciate it. It was more than more than I thought. It was kind it's of huge. fun. Um, huge. It was it was huge. It's um I, my my computer kind of makes a ding when uh when I've got a new email and you know Substack lets you know when you have a new follower and it was there were a lot of there was a lot of dinging yesterday. It was like prices right way. over there. It, it was, was like it was like, on, it was like the wheel <laughs> at the end when it's like beep 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 beep. So uh keep it coming guys. We're happy to be with you. We were happy to talk about some stuff and probably uh, segue into some other stuff. So um I have what's a question for you. Yes ma'am. Have you heard from Pop Rocks? No, Pop Rocks has not contacted us about a sponsorship, and I can't exactly say I'm sad about that. So we last ended our last episode with some Pop Rocks and the real the sound effects super close to the mic. I can't say that was my favorite um, Sunday morning breakfast. I know, but I listened to that audio like a few times. It makes me laugh every single time because <laughs> it's so goofy. And that moment when I start going, it's happening, it's happening. <laughs> like there's a, like a beautiful, you know, total eclipse of the sun or something. But what's actually happening is that there's crackles in my mouth. They were not as... Um as efficient, I guess, as I remember them. I think, you know, the thing I, I don't remember Pop Rocks so much, but I remember the first time, do you know what Zots, do you remember Zots? Zots was this candy, maybe it was just in the seventies, I don't know. And someone handed me one when I was like, I don't know, 10 and you bite into it and it just like explodes with this uh, thing in your mouth. Oh God, I'm going to get it in trouble. But uh, anyway, that, it was pretty this shocking. Sounds like That's, something different, yeah. Nancy. Yeah, I know. I didn't. I actually did. I walked into that, but I didn't mean to. What's a so, zot? What is zot? It's z o t z. It's the name of a candy. It's the name of a 1970s. Don't get candy. upset with me. It I'm was not a- upset. It was the 70s. There's a lot of things that happened in the 70s. My daughter would say to me when I would tell her stories of uh, like my teenage years and stuff, and she'd be like, "Mom, how did you like? How did you get away with that?" I was like, "Honey." It was the seventies. Like I, I don't know exactly how to explain it, but you were, were no like par- hitchhiking and popping zots. Like I it- was, but the thing is that the thing is, and I everybody like born in this era understands that like the parents just weren't around, and you don't fault them for it. It's just the way the culture was. You know, they had been raised in the fifties, early sixties, and all of a sudden it was like, wait a second, we're allowed to do all these things that we were raised 
to understand were terrible, like, you know, uh, adultery and, I don't know, drugs, which didn't even exist. I mean, I'm sure they existed, but didn't exist for, like, most middle-class people. And um, they went well, off and, and did that. a lot of self-actualization. I mean, that's the yes. idea of Tom Wolfe's Me Decade episode, um, essay, which is brilliant and really gives a sense of why the 70s are this turning point in American culture that was a turning inward. Right. Well, and that's fine. But these people also had children. So the, I remember my mother, I mean, my father never went to therapy. Oh, my God. He would have, like, shot himself in the foot before he did that uh, and probably did figuratively. But um, my mother certainly did. And, you know, these things became important. And, and I get it. I mean, my our parents were young when – I don't know about your parents if they were young when you were born. My parents were. And, you know, so I was 15 years old and my mother was like 35 or something like that. And she had other things to do, other things she wanted to explore. And she was single again. And, you know, it just wasn't like – also, kids, at least – in my recollection, obviously I can't speak for all families and kids, like you were kind of expected to raise yourself. And I can't say I'm sad about that because that's sort of just like now the way you operate through life. It's like, I don't expect anybody to do anything for me. You got to, you know, get it done and take care of it. Um, but there was definitely the story I've told before was, um, I think I was 13, maybe 14. So my brother was two years younger. <laughs> my mom's like, okay, listen, I'm going to I'm um, going down to the Bahamas for a couple of days. There's Chef Boyer D stuff in the in the pantry, and I'll see you guys like on whatever. And I was like, uh, oh, okay. And uh <laughs> years later, I was like, Mom, do you remember that? And she's like, oh, Nancy, your father lived like two blocks away. Like, what was I being a baby wow. about? I mean, that would not, I don't, I mean, look, I am sure that actually does happen right now, but it's not the norm, let's say. You know, I was babysitting for money when I was like 11, 12, and 13. Sure. And what's so interesting to me is that like I'll regularly talk to friends of mine that have 11-year-old kids and, and they're, you know, getting babysitters for them. And it's- Which is it, weird. It short circuits me. Yeah. I mean, I, I think- I, I have friends that have kids this age and they're like, at you know, 11 and 12, they're babysitting their little siblings. But yeah, you didn't definitely, I mean, babysitting your little sibling at home while your parents run out to dinner or who knows, whatever they're doing is different than going to someone else's house and caring for someone else's child when you're 11. Like which a baby. We did. I used to which, like oh, take babies. care of babies. Babies. Yeah. I, it was fun. I loved it, was it actually. Fun. It was totally fun. <laughs> and I used to like watch their cable and eat their food. Of course. And it was like such a great transaction. Like I gave them my weekends and they gave me the soft suburban home I craved in my bones because my mother was a health nut that didn't allow us to have cable. Oh, yeah. And and yeah, and you made money. I mean, this is a thing. You I made, made money. so much money. And yeah. I would go to the mall and I would spend it on Limited Express and Limited and a place called Judy's. And yeah, that had all I, those like little earrings and stuff. Oh, and, hell yeah. Claire's. Yeah. Yeah, Claire's. That's it. We didn't. I didn't grow up with because I grew up in New York City. There was no such thing as a mall. I remember that when the first is the saddest story you've ever told. No, me. no, 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 no. Look, malls are disgusting. Okay, I remember. Oh, a mall. Nancy, are we going to fight this early? <laughs> that's it. We found our. We found our first. Where we're going to uh, wage our first battle. Well, I will say, do not no, yeah, not I'm, grow up. Hold on. Do not not grow up with a mall. That makes no sense. And then tell me malls are disgusting. You okay. can't 
say both. If you grew up inside of a mall, you can tell me that. If you okay. didn't grow up with a mall and you don't know the comfort of walking around a mall, an Orange Julius in the 80s, an arcade. Have you seen the movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High? This was our yeah. lives. You can't say that malls are disgusting if you didn't grow up inside of them. That's going to be, I'm going to die on this hill. You are correct. And speaking of malls, someone told me the other day, uh, my favorite food, one of my favorite foods are pretzels. And someone said, have you ever had a Auntie oh. Anne? And I Auntie haven't. Anne. And I Andy M, Auntie something, Anne, pretzel. Anne. Anne. Well, I, n- I haven't, and now I'm looking Aunt forward Annie's. to- Aunt Annie's. Sorry. Now I'm looking forward to going to a mall so I can have an Aunt Annie's pretzel. I've seen them, but they always looked a little uh, suspect. Anyway, so. Um, Sarah, God, have I know- I have so many thoughts on a mall. Can we do a special mall episode We later? have a special mall, mall episode. Oh, and by the way, I'll-, I'll um, I'll foreshadow something I told uh, my daughter, who is the little skincare maven, that at some point we're going to do a skincare episode and she's going to be our our big celebrity guest. So that's that's to look forward to, everyone. Because I posted a picture of you on my Instagram, and one of the first comments was, please get all her secrets from a friend of mine. And I knew exactly what it was. She did not mean your personal life. She did not mean the things that you know about the Ukraine that the rest of us don't. She meant... What is that bitch doing to make her skin look so good? <laughs> well, we're going to reveal all the secrets on that episode. But um, we came here today to talk about a few things that were probably not as pleasant. And um, I don't know if you want to start with um, if you want to start with what you've been doing on the um, the herd dep. I, I have not. I have to admit, I have not tapped into it except what you wrote me the other day, which I found I found very disturbing. Um, you can limit or limb meaning L I M N or, um, but it also gave me a little more balance than I've been seeing because I watched, I watched Depp on the stand and he was extremely, again, that mellifluous voice. He was very modulated. He told his story for hours kind of calmly. And then seeing the texts that he sent, he was really in, in bad, in bad shape. So maybe you can, uh talk a little bit about that. I spent seven hours watching the trial the other day because I came back from New York and I was quite exhausted. Um, This is just a quick bit of backstory. I got acupuncture at your house and it made me, it was incredible, but it made me sleepy in a way that I hadn't felt in many months. And so I was having a lot of trouble just sort of like navigating around my house. And so I ended up, I was going to just listen to a short podcast, but in the podcast, this was Nick Wallace's podcast, Reporting Depth v. Heard, which is a great way to quickly download on the case. Although one of the perils of it is that he'll say things that will snag your attention and then you'll fall into a seven hour uh, (laughs) court trial rabbit hole, which is what happened to me. The detail that I heard was that in the previous day, Johnny Depp, there had been audio in the court that Johnny Depp had shown up at Amber Heard's house. This is after they split. Actually, while she had a restraining order against him, but she had summoned him to her house. He was, they were in the middle of the media barrage. You know, there was a ton of tabloid coverage and she summoned him to her house. And he at one point pulled a knife out of his pocket that he was carrying and said, what do you want? Just cut me. I had never heard anything like this in the context of a court trial. 
he goes on to say that it was out of desperation. Was this felt, taped? I mean, did she have this? Yes, this was audio. Okay, okay. And she's saying, oh, no, 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 no. And he's saying, just go ahead and do it. If you don't do it, I'll do it. It's, it's, it's very confounding to hear out of context. I mean, I, I can't imagine it was normal in context. According to him, he was a broken man who felt that she had taken everything. She had summoned him there. He thought it was under the auspices of reconciliation. It was not. And so he just said, what else can I give you? Almost like a really dark, twisted giving tree. He then said, just cut me. I don't know to what extent he was serious. I don't know to what extent he sounds very, it's undramatic on his side. Um, he sounds desperate and broken. Um, I was struck by this because um, I told you that I was a Johnny Depp fan from the time I was a little girl. And so I would read all the stories about him. And there was an interview that he gave. And I believe it was like Time Magazine, Newsweek, People. It was one of those. I haven't been able to find it, but it was around the crybaby era. And he said a line that's been in my head ever since. And he said that acting was like cutting open your vein, cutting open your wrist and saying, here, take a vein. And I've actually used this sort of formulation or this idea in writing over the years. I mean, I just, I think I, I sort of consciously and unconsciously kind of stole it or, or metabolized it in some way. This idea that art at its, uh, deepest level is a kind of masochism or <clears throat> self-cannibalism of some kind. So uh, I was very struck by the recurrence of this very same idea that, uh, of course, when he was talking to this magazine back in the day, he was speaking metaphorically and, and rather, you know, sort of grand poetically. Um, but, but so many years later, in real life, he actually did this and it can and, be seen as a evidence of his instability. Uh, it could also be seen as evidence of her, his absolute total desperation. Um, it's a it's a very very it's very very sad audio. I I wonder, and again, if I know you and I have talked about it just personally, and talked about it here on the podcast about how she's being, she's been portrayed in, in sort of monstrous ways. You can't, again, can't call someone a monster, but people can behave somewhat monstrously. And it, and it seems, and of course, you know, we were listening to his lawyer speak with him and not being cross-examined, but I was sort of under the impression that she was somewhat more culpable for the issues and problems that they had. Now, obviously, there, it always takes two people to make a situation. But I'm wondering if this last bit of what you watched made you see him as an sort of equal participant in the disaster. So one of the things that really struck me, um, and, and I have found Johnny Depp to be an absolutely riveting and deeply sympathetic witness. But one of the things I can't help notice as somebody who quit drinking 12 years ago and had to work through my own denial and resistance around the way my drinking affected other people in my life is his absolute stonewall against 
admitting that his alcohol abuse or that he himself have hurt anybody else. There was a really interesting moment in the trial day that I watched where he says, the only person in my life I have abused is myself. Now, I relate so deeply to that. In fact, when I went into AA the second time when I was 35, because I went at 25 too, but I only stayed for a year. So then I went back at 35. I told my sponsor, you know, you're supposed to build this resentment list. And I said, well, the only person on my resentment list is myself. And the only person I hurt is myself. And one of the things that sobriety or recovery or just walking a little bit away from the spill radius of alcohol does for you is to give you a little bit more insight into how your behaviors actually deeply affected people. Um, Because I'm such a self-immolator, and I suspect uh, Johnny is too, meaning that if I hurt somebody, I'm just, I I tend towards Um, self-destruction. There's an incredibly powerful line I heard once, which described alcohol as suicide for a night. And so that is that is one of the best descriptions of the kind of uh, alcohol abuse that that I was participating in, and probably Johnny Depp as well. And so anyway, um, that that line um, suggests to me that he's in some deep denial around um, what this his alcohol use has done to his relationships, to his friendships, to the people that take care of him, to his children. There was uh, a testimony from a woman that ran his private island. She talked about him passing out face down in the sand. And she had to get like a helicopter to come rescue some people on a boat that was partying. Um, You know, when you when you collapse into the kind of oblivion drinking and drug use that he clearly was a part of, I think what you often don't notice is the people that are having to take care of you, pick you up, prop you around, clean up your messes, clean up your shit. I mean that literally and figuratively. I don't mean whatever. Like like people, like when I was drunk, I would walk into traffic and my friends had to pull me out. That's difficult for them. It scared them. I I had I was like I'm only hurting myself. Well, no, I'm not. I'm upsetting them. You know what's interesting? When we first um, I don't remember if it was the last episode or the one before. But I was I was pretty convinced, and I think there's part of me that's still convinced that watching what's going on because because the trial here is basically saying it's hinged on the two 2018 editorial she wrote for the Washington Post talking about you know how women's being um sexually abused or abused in general by men has to come out more. Me too too moment. Um, I'm also thinking that, sure, it can be that. But this is also just, as I guess every one of these things are, a really deeply personal and tragic, you know, relationship with these two people. We also spoke earlier, and I know this from experience, people that are getting divorced, um, a lot of times they don't do it quickly. It just takes forever because you can't be in love with the person anymore. So you're going to be involved in another way. This is why people's divorces take, you know, seven years. Um, but these people just um, happen to be doing it in public. And I also think it's funny. I I thought even as early as last week that the culture would sort of stay riveted to this because it is sort of about, again, a referendum about a larger sort of movement and moment. But I don't know. Personally, I'm already, I've already moved on. Like I I have just 
there's so many other things in the world. And I'm, I'm interested in what's happening with these two, I guess, but I'm also kind of just, it's just such a giant mess. It's like, well, it's extremely dark. It's extremely dark. Can yeah. I go? One of the most interesting things of, of yesterday's testimony was a forensic psychologist who I, uh, examined Amber Heard and diagnosed her with, by, uh, borderline personality and histrionic disorder. And that was I know I know I personally know I have people that are very close in my life who are borderline personalities. And uh that it's tough. It's tough to deal with them. Very. So I found this to be like an education in an affliction that I'm realizing is very prominent both in celebrity and by extension social media, both of which select for attention getters and very attractive people, both of which have there's a there's a high overlap in borderline personality. So this was a woman named Dr. Shannon Curry. She was hired by Johnny Depp's team, um, you know, but she is a respected uh forensic psychologist. She's also totally hot, which I just need to mention. She had this like really cool must up hair. She kind of looked like I've been fucked kind of hair. And it was just like, oh my God, this is like, wow. And there are these split screens of her and Amber Heard when you watch court TV. And she just looks like so earthy and, and like blood is running through her veins. And she's obviously like deeply intelligent, but she also speaks in this really like understandable way. And then Amber Heard is listening to this diagnosis and she's, you know, she's pretty as a fragile doll. She had like Heidi um, braids and this like a crew jacket, but she was just sitting there with this like sideways smile on her face, taking her little notes. And she just looked chilly as she heard this description by this, doctor who had examined her to see if she had if she indeed had PTSD and the woman determined that she did not have PTSD what she had was these two afflictions so i'm just going to um read a little bit cuz i i found this very um i found this very educational because okay. i've always been confused about borderline personality disorder it's a weird what, kind when of a i first wishy diagnosis heard it i was like what does that mean it's someone that i i met a number of years ago and boy was his behavior crazy and the person who knows him better said oh he has borderline personality i was like what does that mean that doesn't sound like it means anything but it's it, it's kind I learned. of like a bucket <laughs> term is my understanding that it sort of like like fits a bunch of stuff that don't go in other categories. But but this actually sharpened it, if what she's saying is accurate. Uh, it really sharpened it for me. So she starts out by saying that Amber Heard has a very sophisticated way of minimizing any personal problems. And what she sees in people with BPD is externalization of blame, a tendency to be self-righteous, but to deny that one is self-righteous. And to claim that one is non-judgmental, but an, in reality, to be quite judgmental. And so this immediately reminds me of about mm, 20, 50 people on Twitter. Mm. Um, I'm going to say I, I've done a lot of 
reporting on people that I've sort of, I did not have an official diagnosis of their personalities, but I, I sort of call, called them the, the charming sociopaths. And one of them who I wrote about, um, this uh, woman named Laura Albert, who had gone, uh, had posed as this uh, author, J.T. Leroy. I'll put a link to the story. Um, J.T. Leroy was a, a young, runaway, drug-addicted, potentially HIV-positive street urchin hooker in San Francisco who wound up becoming this real cause celeb writer. And it's a long story, but I had a history with JT and then wound up being around when JT was revealed to be a woman named Laura Albert. Not not that personality that she'd created, but in fact, a 40-something-year-old woman from Brooklyn. And um, I spent a lot of time with Laura and I spent a lot of time talking to people who had been involved with Laura while she was perpetrating. She said she wasn't perpetrating it, a hoax uh, uh, of JT Leroy. And they all said, or the ones that mentioned it, that she was the most frightening person they'd ever met in terms of how she could turn on a dime. And I experienced it um, after the story came out. It was like standing next to just a, a whatever, and then all of a sudden having a blast furnace in your face. And I am not a, I'm not particularly easily intimidated. It was bananas. And um, I think that might be, I don't know if that's borderline personality at all, but it's a certain certain uh, personality characteristic that that might be involved here too. Okay. So this is tracks entirely with what this doctor was talking about. So, so Borderline personality disorder is characterized by an instability that's driven by an underlying terror of abandonment. And they'll make desperate attempts to keep themselves from being abandoned. And so you see very extreme behaviors. Wow. And this is characterized by what's called emotional reactivity. And because of that emotional reactivity, a lot of these people are often diagnosed with bipolar because they're up and down. But with bipolar, you'll see a crash that's sort of like very, very long. But with these people, the fluctuating moods are just constant constant and there's a hypersensitivity to being offended. Like if the, the example she used is if the therapist comes in two minutes late, which by the way, immediately made me think of Jada Pinkett Smith on her red couch <gasps> waiting for her husband. Um, oh man, that's right. Where, where and, he came, and she says to the camera, oh, two minutes late. I was like, what, who, what wife would yeah. do this to her husband unless she's trying? What did we, what did we talk about? What did we talk about with that happiness guy said, what is the indicator that a marriage is open? Is is over. Yeah. <laughs> open. Wow. Nice, nice slip yeah, of the tongue there. Uh, and a marriage uh, is over is when you treat your spouse with contempt in public. Okay, not only is that in public, she's freaking taping it for all of Facebook to see. Um, one of the things that this uh people with BPD, they will often physically prevent the partner from leaving. Um, they make mm. desperate bids that often involve self-harm or legal oh. threats to keep them. And the partner tends to put up with this because they think they're doing something kind or good by not oh, leaving. And <sighs> so Amber Heard has actually said in the past that she'd cut her own arm. And I think this happened before Johnny Depp. Um, this is typical of the diagnosis. A story that uh, really clicked everything into place for this doctor was when she heard a story from the former friend who told a story about shopping for Thanksgiving with Amber Heard. And something happened and Amber Heard just struck her in the face out of nowhere. Wait, what? And, you know... It's not clear why this happened, but a little bit like what you just said with Laura Alpert, the the 
the turn on a dime and the the change was so explosive. And this is a classic sign of BPT. If a friend isn't meeting your needs in the moment, the BPT person is very kind if their needs are being met. They're very charming. The relationships start very oh, intensely. Oh. They idealize <sighs> you. They idealize friends and lovers. This is my they soulmate. Them, they, and they, I, this one other person I know that has this, they are absolutely effusive in their in their um, compliments to you or to other people. They can be like like over the top. You're like, God, yes. I'm, I'm kind of getting uncomfortable about this. Yes. And then say one thing that challenges and they will look, they will threaten you. Threaten yes. like, oh, do you want me to call? Do you want me to call whatever the attorney or something? You're like, what just what the fuck just happened? Yes. It's, and they, it, what happens is that they become disillusioned um so quickly because they've idealized you so much. And they have what's called splitting. And they see things as black and white. Like people are either ideal or they are evil. You know, they're 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 gonna save me or they're a dumpster fire. Again, this is actually the language of Twitter, which really it really bothers me. One that is exact I don't God, like exactly Twitter. Right. But uh, exactly I've never right. known the term splitting, but uh, but that's actually actually just you know binary thinking, and so when you look at somebody with BPT, you see BPD, you see a lot of transitions in their friendships. In other words, they don't keep friends for very long because they they can't. So it, they have a, a history of a lot of fallouts with people. And uh, one of the the last thing I'll, I'll include here is that there is a strong overlap with beauty and attractiveness because these people tend to be attention seeking and they use their looks in order to get what they need. What they need is this love. You know, there's usually some sort of childhood wound underneath these things. So that was what I learned about borderline personality disorder. And I found it absolutely fascinating. And, is, uh, you know, by the way, she also has histrionic personality disorder, a separate thing that uh, is associated with drama and shallowness and a need to be the center of attention. And, uh, you know, there's just there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap with these disorders with abuse, with um, with with uh, abusing the partner. I'm going to say one little thing about beauty, and it kind of segues into something else that actually happened to me yesterday that I'll, I'll mention here. Um, so people make, I mean, obviously people make allowances for beauty, and beauty can be a commodity, but people also tend to see two people can commit the same exact act, and I'll give the example that I know about, um, and if one who's beautiful or beautiful and young or whatever, it they'll 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 give a reason that makes sense to them, and someone who is not they'll they'll say no no that was a terrible act and the example I'll give and I cited in my book uh to the bridge a two story of motherhood and murder uh I studied um um maternal filicide as mothers that kill their children and mothers who kill their children there's a variety of reasons why they do it and if the killer is caught and if she's young and attractive like a Casey Anthony uh she will they will say well you know, there were reasons why we can understand why she did this or she didn't do this. If she is not, and this happened while I was writing about the woman who had uh, killed her child, uh, if she's like, you know, kind of ratty looking or unattractive or older, they'll say, okay, she's uh, evil and we are going to give her the death penalty, which happened in a case um, that I was writing about in Oregon at the same time as my mother killer was being tried, who got sentenced to... Um, did not get sentenced to death. And um, we make allowances for beauty that um, sometimes are, I, I don't know why we do it. 
it's it's you know we like little children we like cute little baby animals like oh we, I mean I we, think it's probably human nature and yeah and, it's and probably, things we're, going, we're probably evolved to to also um, save like we want to save like what's healthy right we want to save what's yeah healthy. yeah because we confuse, beauty has to do something with um symmetry and symmetry has to and, do with um sort of like good, genetic health good glowing skin. See, yeah, I mean, I, I I'm just you know, trying I've to save my own life before. here. Sarah. No, I mean, like, I know beauty privilege is one of the most powerful kinds of privilege, and yet it's almost rarely spoken about in part because we're doing this smokescreen, this weird gaslighting with with little girls in general, where we tell them that they're all equally beautiful. And it's a really bizarre thing to do. I understand exactly why we do it because we want people to have an internal sense of value and worth. But to to pretend as though everyone is equally beautiful and then verifiably that's not true. Um, well, it's like saying everybody's tall. Well, that's no, exactly right. Everybody's not tall, you know. And and there are there are also privileges come with height. I know this as the daughter of someone who is six five and a half and whose husband is tall. And there's definitely. I remember watching, um, I, I like there's some study that shows like a number of CEOs tend to be taller. It's, it's just, it's just this commodity that we as human beings respond to. So, you know, I have beauty privilege, but not height privilege. You do I not have five height. foot two tiny little. Thing. And so I have to carry my stepping stool around to reach the high shelves in my house. Or you can just have Steve Kornacki stand on a chair when the smoke alarm goes off, as I did the other day, because I burnt something in the uh, oven right when the that party was, started. That was the other <laughs> catastrophe that I never managed to talk about at your party. I talked about yeah. the one where I spilled seltzer all over your books. Yes. But I didn't yes. talk about when you burned the butter and then the alarm was going off and Steve Kornacki had to unlatch the smoke alarm and four people stood around kind of like trying to – I really thought somebody was going to take a hammer to your smoke alarm at one point. I got it, though. I, I disabled it. Um, it's interesting that you were talking just now about borderline personality disorder and Twitter because I sent you an article last night, a recent article by Jonathan Chait. I don't know how that's how you say his name. Uh, it was in Chait. New Chait. Jonathan Chait uh, in New York uh, Magazine called Political Correctness is Losing. And um, this is something I think a lot of us have been sensing for a while in terms of the very extreme decisions of people, uh, you know, and in politics of like 2020 and 2021, as yeah, I covered the the protests in Portland and and just some of the absolutely cuckoo bananas things there and what were being said and like, you know, no, there's no violence going on. And if there is, it's completely justified. I'm like, are you insane? And now this is all sort of in, in to the point where um, there is now someone running for city council. He's going to replace this one gal, Joanne Hardesty, who was, oh my God, her positions were so out of control. Um, and he's talking like all this common sense, and it is exactly what the city of Portland needs right now. And I contacted his his uh, his um, campaign manager yesterday, saying, "I want to talk to you. I want to talk about the uh, the 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 sanity being reintroduced." But I thought this article—it's in uh, this week's New York Magazine um, again by how's it Jonathan Chait Chait. I think so. Is really worth reading. His pieces are always like, they're always like a thousand words, so you can get through them like super quick. Um, but I did want to read something that made my eyeballs fly out of my head. Um, as some of you know, and as a lot of us have been talking about in writing, um, there is regime change at the head of the New York Times. 
Uh, Dean Becquet, who's been the executive editor for, I don't know, for 12 years now, something like that, is mandatorily stepping down. They require, the Times requires that you you get out of the way when you turn 65 or before you turn 65. And um, people have been talking a little bit about what that augurs for the paper and how maybe uh, he, the new incoming uh, executive editor, Joe Kahn, is going to be able to... Uh, make the more activist class in the newsroom um, not be so activist and stop calling for people's heads publicly and on Twitter and uh, and on their Slack. And the example we all talked about is uh, the uh, case of Donald McNeil Jr., which I'm sure most of our listeners know who that is. He was the science reporter at the Times. He'd been at the Times for 45 years uh, last January when he was called out um, by some uh, reporters at the Daily Beast um, for, uh, if they didn't say for being a racist for but or for committing a racism uh, when he was on a New York Times sponsored s- trip for students in Peru in 2019. Uh, one of the students, and obviously if you've got enough money to go on, these are pretty privileged kids that are going on these trips, you know, it's probably five, low five figures to get down there. One of them was saying to him that there had been a girl at her school that when she was 12 had used the N word and it had been taped and it had resurfaced. And, um, uh, she used the word, I guess the student did. And McNeil said back to her, did she say the N-word and he used it? Or what was it in, was she using it or was it in the context of something else? Well, it turned out it was in the context of something else. But nevertheless, because it was 2019, some students and parents got peeved that he had used it even in context and they they complained to the Times. And Dean Backay called McNeil in and said, this is, this is, we don't like this. And we just want to know that, I don't know if it was not a black mark on his record or something, but he was basically disciplined for it at the paper. Well, in 2021, some people uh, inside the paper had found out that this had happened, already been adjudicated. Hi, we have such a thing called no double jeopardy. And they brought the story, they leaked the story to the Daily Beast. Uh, it became a big thing. And long story short, he was um, summarily drummed out of the paper while he was the lead science and COVID reporter and up for a Pulitzer Prize, which I always saw as using new methods, which are, you know, Twitter and Slack and uh, we're and and accusations of racism where they don't exist um, to to get an old goal, which is to get ahead, right? Because I don't know why they wanted him out, but they wanted him out, right? Absolutely. And just to further extend the fallout on this, it was it was really fascinating when Mike Pesca at Slate began talking about this case <sighs> in the Slack channel, and also did not use the N-word, but used the actual word, and then was pushed out of Slate. Right. The, the word On the become, Slack channel. That's right. So these are people with long-time careers. Now, my impression is that, and this is, yeah, this is going to be the time, since time immemorial, young people come in, they want the old people out. You know what? I, I think of life as a conveyor belt. You get on, and you go down the conveyor belt, and eventually you fall off, whether it's just in terms of your lifespan or your career. And, you know, there's always been something called ambition. But I am all in favor of people that are doing a better job to be able to push people that have, I don't know, gotten stale or they don't understand how to do their jobs, and, you know, they get pushed out. That's the way it is. But to use 
totally illegitimate things because they know that this accusation today, whether it's accusations of racism or sexism or Me Too or whatever, to use to wield this as a power stick when you don't really have the goods, I find this to be, I find this to be an absolutely terrible way to first of all run your life personally, but to have the world run, which is why. It I got so bananas and crazed about the McNeil story, which I reported on for Newsweek and for for my own stuff. And Matt and I, Matt Walsh and I, did plenty of of, of uh, Paloma Media uh, uh, YouTube's about this because you should be concerned that this is happening at the New York Times because the New York Times is you have trusted the New York Times to give you the news. And if this is now how they are going to let their newsroom operate, then this is a problem. And in a long, long article about uh, Joe Kahn in New York Magazine, um, someone was saying to him, well, what about like, you know, the, or, oh no, I know what it was. So Donald McNeil Jr. wrote a great piece recently about Dean Becquet, about the changing of the guard there. And he's like, if Joe Kahn doesn't believe that there are Maoist struggle sessions happening at the Times, you better look into it. And because apparently he doesn't. Well, there is. But I just want to I just want to read a little extension of this because this is someone that drives me insane. And I've now pretty much gone public with it. And it's Margaret Sullivan, who is one of the opinion writers at the Washington Post, and she used to be the ombudsman over at, at the Times. And I, I find her the past couple of years, as I said to Matt Welch, why do you, why do you torture me? He always sends me her columns, and I'm just like, I have yet to read something trenchant. Her true north these days, absolutely at all times, is that we have to save democracy from darkness, which means making sure that certain people are not, you know, given the mouthpieces they they can have just by dint of what they do well. So this is how she was quoted in the Jonathan Chait piece. Um, when the New York Times forced science writer Donald G. McNeil Jr. to resign for quoting, not using, a racial slur, Washington Post media columnist Margaret Sullivan suggested that anybody who disagreed with his termination was also racist. In quotes, it's not hard to believe, she wrote, that any white person who would freely utter or defend the most offensive racial slur in English may well be someone with a history of other problems. And back to Chait. This is a pure distillation of witch hunt logic. Anybody who objects to the fairness of the proceedings is presumptively implicated in the crime of the accused. And then he finished, I'll finish here, saying, a system based on frightening dissenters into submission is a brittle foundation for social change. And I think that sort of ties into what you're saying about the borderline personality disorder of Twitter. It's like, it's one or the other. That's not the way the world is. No, of course not. You, you don't say all cops are bastards. This is this is so purely freaking nonsensical. And adolescent. yet, and you, oh, and I had this happen. I, I, okay. I I am being dead honest here. If I have heard, if I had a dollar for each time I have heard all cops are bastards chanted, I'd have two thousand dollars easily. And I I went up to some people at one of the um it was like a back the blue rally happening in uh it was September 2020 in Portland in front of the police station like twelve people there just saying actually we like cops and you know four hundred people behind me screaming and I said to what seemed to be kind of a nice couple. I was like, so let me ask you a question. You're from here, you're from Central Oregon. Like, have you ever had, ever had a good interaction with a police officer? And they're like, no, that's not even fucking possible. I'm like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say to you because it is possible. 
And most interactions with police officers are probably pure, are probably pretty positive. Like they're there to help stuff out. They're not all great. But anyway, we've seen that on Twitter. We've seen that in the culture. Uh, uh, Jade goes on to talk about um, certain places, including like Yale, and then that um, that that um, that museum in in Philadelphia that drummed out the or no um, newspaper it's the uh, architecture inquirer, right? And the ed- executive editor was pushed out because of a headline that said something like. Buildings matter too. Well, it was. I think it was the architecture critic, but maybe it was his executive editor. Just, I mean, sure enough, the idea, enough. the idea that, the idea that it shouldn't matter if you burn down a building, like, shouldn't matter at all. It's a nothing. It's a nothing. Well, well, how how does this how does this work? Do you have to only care about one thing, and if you don't care about other things too, then you axi- axiomatically are on the bad side? How about we care about a lot of things? How about you look at what's going on and say, are we right in all circumstances at all times? And anybody that disagrees with us, fuck them. We are allowed to drag them into the public square. We are allowed to rob them of their jobs. We are allowed to humiliate them and shame them and never let them ever work again. This is changing and it's and it's got to change. It is. And I share a lot of your outrage around, especially the Donald McNeil story. I remember being really shocked and appalled by that when it happened. It really freaked me out. Like you said, I mean, it seemed like something was wrong at the New York Times when when something like that happens. But, you know, one of the gifts of my life is that I hang out with and date a lot of people who are not in the journalism world. Oh, yeah. And they do not have any fucking idea what you've been talking about for the last 10 minutes. They don't they don't have any idea who Donald McNeil is. They've never heard of Slate. They don't know. Like they don't know this. But let me tell you something. One of the reasons I knew that political correctness was losing, at least temporarily, is that I started hanging out with 20 somethings and they don't give a shit about all this crap that's been online and they are sick of it and they can't stand like they think it's funny uh the same way i think it's funny uh we had really surprising like like intellectual sinks um s-y-n-c you know, I started for complicated reasons I'll maybe talk about later. I started dating 20 somethings. And like we're talking about like 24, 25. And they would hang out. And first of all, they loved the 90s. They had like cassettes and like corduroy jackets <laughs> and like were just like longing for an analog, you know, age that they never saw because everything is digital and meaningless. Um, they're starved for sort of touch and connection. And they don't really have words for that. And that's all very profound. And we can talk about that another time. But one of the very interesting things I noticed, it first happened because like millennials that I date would be like, oh my God, you smoke. That's disgusting. And the the Zoomers would be like, oh dude, can I, can I get a cigarette? Because they all vape. And they don't think it's a big deal to smoke. It's kind of like you do you. Why, why would I care if what you do with your cigarettes, like what? Cause they all smoke weed too. So, um, that was the first thing I noticed, but then they had this irreverent humor. They are not necessarily on Twitter. You know, a lot of them are on TikTok. Maybe oh, yeah. they're on Snapchat all the time. Um, but like they, 
they think this stuff is toxic. They so, wait, think but it's let me laughable. Interrupt you one second. And and they're not on Twitter, so it's like the little Twitter alta world doesn't understand that there's this whole generation of people that thinks what they're doing is patent nonsense. Okay, so two things. Number one, yeah, I have a I I I I would say in my life, fifty percent of the people I am closest with have zero social media presence, like zero. One because he has the highest level of, of Defense Department security, and he's not allowed <laughs> to have anything like that. My husband does nothing. My daughter, like, occasionally posts an Instagram story. Like, they just don't, like, this stuff- Left behind. Does, They've they, been raptured. They don't want, they don't, they, they're not interested. And, and that's great. And I think they do represent a large part of the country. I'll just circle back one second to say, and that's great. It does matter, and it doesn't matter, because it's like, it's, it, 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 it's not, it's a, it's a, Tempest in teacups. However, when the New York Times is acceding to it, it's not a tempest in the teacup because it's the biggest, it's the biggest paper in the world. And that stuff does matter when we are relying them to relying on them to to give us the news pretty straight and not fire people because you've got 150 angrier, cranky people that say they feel unsafe because someone used a word in context two years before. This is a problem. I need, didn't we talk about this before? Like I need journalists to be the people. I I don't know if we was on a different episode, but I want the journalists to be the people that calm things down. I think that's our job is to look at information, bring it to the public in the calmest way that we can. It can be devastating information. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we still have to deliver it in a calm manner. We cannot people be people inside the building saying, I can't function. I can't work anymore because someone might've used a word in context two years before. That is not the person I am going to trust. To bring me my bring me the news, but number well, it's two, very difficult. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I just wanted to say, how do the twenty somethings even know about this? Like, hoo ha ha! If they're not involved in it, if they're not on Twitter, how do they know that these sorts of little culture worry things are going on? Are a they a lot of times they don't? I'll tell them about. Well, that's it, cool. And, like, and they're like, that's "Are you cool. serious?" I like that. They're like, "Twitter is stupid." Um, <laughs> I'll be like, do you ever go on Twitter? And they're like, yeah, just to like make fun of it. Or no, one guy said he was so cute too. He's a 27 year old. And he was like, I go, do you go on Twitter? And he goes, when I want to get a laugh. And like, cause he just goes on there and like laughs at people. And then he logs off. My best friend who I grew up with has no social media at all. But you know, she occasionally, for whatever reason, needs to go on Facebook to find something. She's in the film business. So like, she'll, so she just logs on as me or, or onto Twitter. She says every time she calls on Twitter, she's like, yeah, I'm out of here. Like, it's, this is not. Oh, totally. Did you see that? that wasn't it, I don't know if this was true or not, but like Michael Caine joined Twitter and the first, the first tweet was hello. And then seven minutes later, it was like, see ya. And, and he was like, I, I'm leaving this place. Okay, and so I mean, it, it, sorry. it trended. Uh, that Michael Caine had had the shortest tenure on Twitter. That seven, well, that, that's right. So I can't, I guess I'm going to segue just to tell a story, which I actually told you the other day, but maybe the readers are going to like it. Little readers, little viewers, the listeners. What do we have here, Sarah? Voyeurs. So, um, we have voyeurs. So some people might know uh, my daughter is half Native American. Her grandfather was Will Sampson, who starred in the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as the big chief. Uh, there is a point to this story. And uh, he the, he was not an actor. He had been like a lineman and an artist, and he'd been in the military. But when Michael Douglas and Saul Zantz, the producers of 
the film One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest were looking for their, in quotes, big Indian, they would go around to rodeos and different uh, native powwows and say, do you know of anybody? We really need like a big guy. And then the rodeo announcers would go, oh yeah, you want to find Sonny Sampson. So he, they'd go to the announcer's booth and go, Sonny Sampson, Sonny Sampson. If Sonny Sampson's in the arena, please come up. Blah, blah, blah. Well, he'd be there sometimes and he would get in his truck and he would drive away because he did not know who was looking for him and did not think it was going to be a positive experience. But finally, they did round him up and they explained to him what they wanted. And he was like, okay, he wasn't an actor. never wanted to be an actor. And they bring him down to Oregon. It's the, the, uh, they filmed at the, um, the state asylum or institution, whatever it was, was called back then. And he was there for like a day and a half. And as anyone who's worked in the film business knows, it's hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. And he was just like, you know what? I'm out of here. He left. He's like, just like Michael Caine in seven minutes. He was there one day. He got in his truck and drove away. He's like, I don't need this noise. But eventually they lured him back and the rest is history. So uh, I want to watch One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest again, maybe with you. Maybe we'll watch it together it's, so you can. I will tell you a nice story. So I knew Will. Uh, the, his family called him Sonny. That's why they called him, asked for Sonny Sampson at the arena. But I knew Will. And um, he was pretty sick. And then he got sicker. When I met him, we were hanging around a lot. And one day he was pretty much in bed. But he was had this beautiful like carved wood bed up in this little tiny cabin in Sunland Tahunga. We were there one afternoon and uh, decided to watch Cuckoo's Nest. So I sat next to him on the bed. We watched Cuckoo's Nest. And he told me and his son, who I had a baby with, Tim, um, like all the inside stories. Like, oh, you see this scene? See this scene where uh, um, Jack Nicholson has the like, uh, he's on the, they're giving him shock therapy and he like rears back. He's like, he reared back so much that he actually pulled all these muscles and he had to, they had to stop production. And he just told us some other really, really cute stories. So that was, um, that was a pretty cool thing. He was a very brilliant, so smart man. Oh man. What a smart guy. It's an amazing movie. I want, I'm going to watch that. Yeah. An amazing movie. He's another, yeah. I want to, I want to return to this idea you said about journalists calming us. Can I return there? Yeah. Yep. So I thought that was such an interesting observation. I really share your desire for it, but it feels so hopelessly deadlocked with the the marketplace that selects for outrage. In other words, to be a journalist calming people in a competitive gladiator arena that demands outrage, anger, and... uh inflammatory language is to essentially cancel yourself. No, nope. You know, one of the things that I think, one of the tragedies that I watched up close was what headlines did to journalism. Meaning what we might call more flattened, we might say clickbait headlines. But I think that, that really it was just all headlines. Like all, all the argument had to move up into the headline and it often misrepresented the story. It disincentivized people from reading the story itself. And, you know, it broke trust with the the readership because they would click on these things and realize that it was not delivering what it needed, but the, but it didn't matter because the click was all that mattered. So it didn't matter if you liked it or hated it. There's a great piece in Esquire called The Year We Broke the Internet. The idea is that, you know, basically when you premise stories on eyeballs, one of the things that happens is it doesn't matter if people like it or hate it. A hate share counts as much as a 
as a this was fascinating share. So so anyway, any metric works. So hate is as valuable as love. So anyway, one of one of the the least wise things you could possibly do as a journalist is to calm people because it is and, and I think it's also one of the most one of the most useful and ethically honest things you could do in this environment. I try to do it in my own writing, but I'm saying that the incentive of the entire superstructure is incentivized uh, for the opposite. All right. Well, I've got, I've got so much to say about this. I, I've had people in the past couple of years ask me, um, so do you, do your editors, like, do they ask you to like write in a way that they'll get clicks. Uh, first of all, I mean, they could be speaking Serbo-Croatian to me. I don't even, I mean, I I understand what they're saying, but I have never in my life worked for a publication that would ask me to do that, nor would I do it. I mean, I think good headlines are good. That's cool. And you do definitely want to have like interesting pull quotes and you want to construct, I love construction. You want to construct your story in a way that keeps the well, reader Well, as a reading. writer, you're not writing the headline though, I have to say. Like, the, no. like a lot of what I learned about headlines, I learned because I was an editor at Salon and it was completely evident to me what the headlines did to the stories because you watch Chartbeat. You'd ha- watch it in real time. So that was not a writer's situation. That is an editor's thing. That's true. I do at Paloma Media. We do write the headlines sometimes now. So and, and and sometimes I do suggest headlines and they they use them. I mean that. But um, I also if I kept writing, doing my very best work for places that gave me a headline that was just garbage, I'd probably stop writing for them. Number two, yeah, I really do not like. There's certain publications that do this that like you open the article and they give you like seven quick graphs in bold type. I don't I don't like this. I I don't I I feel like it's some kind of freaking TV dinner that they're serving me. Like here are here are all your little bits. Like why do we even need to, to oh, go mean like on Vox and, or something or like Daily Mail? Or, does I, this? I think Bloomberg does this. Like I they just summarize uh, it before the yeah, piece. Yeah, it's like all yeah, it's like I just don't I don't need oh, that much. In case you're too in case you're not smart enough to read the rest of the piece, Nancy. Here's yeah, well, the cheat sheet. Yeah. Here. Okay. I get it. I get it. And I, hey, I've been known to skim articles, but I am going to, I'm going to stand here. You know, we don't, we, we pick the, you know, we pick the hills we're going to die on. And here's mine. As someone who has written extremely difficult stories, like I'm writing about mothers that are killing their children. Okay. This is not like you, you have now, it's like you want clickbait. Okay. Go write about this like Danish they made in Brooklyn and make it sound like the craziest thing we all need to. And it's like, wait, what this just does not deserve it. I think there's an in for me, there's an inverse proportion. Like if you're doing a super, super, super difficult story, or even any story that you take seriously, it is your job to. Bring it to the reader in a way that they get the most understanding with, and they and they stick with it. I once interviewed the writer Wing, William Langespecher, who we've talked about before, who definitely writes about difficult subjects. The you know world, the nine eleven, the the towers coming down, and and the ocean, and the deserts, and and nuclear weapons. And he's like, listen, if a reader stops reading, that's your fault. It's your fault. It's never it's never the reader's fault. It's your fault. And I firmly believe that. And I firmly believe the way to deliver people very difficult stories is with the most calm that you can. Because if you don't, if you set their hair on fire in paragraph one, they are not going to have the information we, they need 
to move forward. I can't remember if we did this in this episode or in a different episode, but I was like, you're on top of the mountain. You're stranded. Do you want the person that says, I am going to get you down? I am going to get us to safety and here's how. Or do you want the person standing there screaming at the top of their lungs? I I don't want the person. That person is useless to me. That person is not part of the solution. Um, and you, I am going to let you speak, but then I'm going to segue into the other story that I've now read twice in the past two days. I just want to give a shout out to places that do this right. Last year, I did one of the most in emotionally intense stories of my life because I interviewed a woman that had become an ultra marathon runner. One of the reasons she did that was because she had been married to someone that she tried to leave. He eventually burned down the house with her two children in it and himself oh my in God. it. Oh my so God, she is Sarah. the last survivor. She lost Sarah. both of her children. Her name is Karen Sparks. She is a, she became a dear friend and it was the most intense story I'd ever worked on. In fact, just sharing, you know, you can imagine how Karen goes through the world. Just telling this story to you changed your chemistry and the way you were holding your body. I'm and she's not even in the room. Can you imagine what she does when she walks into a room and people are reminded of the horror that happened in her life? So she very bravely, I mean, I don't even know if it's brave. I mean, I just think she's a, she's just an incredible badass and she's a survivor. And we spent nine hours together in a coffee shop in McKinney, Texas, which is where she lives. And, um, you know, when I did this story for Runner's World, uh, they were so careful. They were they so careful. Every single damn thing. I had an amazing editor named Le Leah Flick Flickinger. She had won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, she had edited a, a story that won the Pulitzer Prize the year before. And, you know, they were like every headline, every photo. This is not normal. This is not normal, but it should be because you shouldn't have to go through this hell to have the respect that you get. But let me tell you, they just gave me incredible respect. They checked everything in terms of how we we positioned it on the Internet. I was so, so, so scared that her story was going to get you could sensationalize it so easily. And it was oh, very important to me. It was very important to Karen that the story be delivered. And that it was a story about her children. It was not a story about her horrible, difficult it's our, spouse. It's our duty. You know, we sat here the other day in my living room. We were talking about like, like what makes you cry. What makes me cry is that we have this duty to, sorry, you know, we both came from the alt-weekly world where we were allowed to do, I mean, I was at the LA Weekly, bless my editors there. And bless this editor that you have um, at Runner's World, and also the editor that you talked about at the Atlantic. Oh, I Scott think it's Stossel. right. Ugh. It's our and, and I'll give a shout out to Janet Duckworth, who's actually retired now. But um, it's our duty to bring these hard stories forward. And I just actually wrote a piece that turned into piece for a reason today, talking about and I won't go into exactly why because I don't want to scoop myself, but talking about how um, how very difficult stories, how sometimes people are either afraid to tell them or they don't want them told because they don't want to hear from these horrible people. But you don't understand what happens when you when you midwife these stories to their next destination. 
what they actually become. And they become vehicles for a moment of understanding or beauty or wonder, or just simply like the example I was using was like the book Wise Guy by Nicholas Pileggi, which is about, you know, a mobster, Henry Hill. And what is, you know, he brings this story forward. Well, what's what's Henry Hill doing? He's smashing in people's faces and hijacking trucks. But it becomes this book that then you know, Martin Scorsese sees and turns into Goodfellas, which becomes this other thing. We, we, if we take the, um, the responsibility to bring these things out in the best way we can with the most care, and this has nothing to do with clicks, but guess what? If you do it right. Yeah. So maybe, I don't know, maybe you're not going to get the, whatever the, I don't know. You're the you're going to get fleece. the you're going to get the right people reading it, okay? And it's going to be received in ways that keep the story moving forward in 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 ways that are that actually are beautiful. I mean, I haven't read this story. We're gonna, by the way, we're always gonna have um, lots of lots of links in the show notes, and I certainly will will link these pieces and other ones, including the one I'd like to segue into, if I may. Please. And I can't remember. Were you the one that? Sent me this piece. I did didn't I send, send you this you? piece. You found it independently, but I had read it. Uh, I saw it when it first came out. I'm a big fan of Tom Junod, and I also was fascinated by the story. So I read it one morning. It took me about an hour because it's really long. Oh, it's it's um, longer, longer. I think it's yeah. got to be like fifteen thousand words. It's a long story. So this story, I'm actually even not sure what the actual name of it is. Is it is it hidden or something like that? It was an ESPN. And it's about a serial rapist uh, on the University of Penn campus and then off into Long Island um, named um, Todd Hodney. It's by Tom Juneau, who I think is um, one of the best journalists, not just of this generation, but of any time. Um, Readers will, uh, or listeners will maybe know his, um, his article, Falling Man, that he did for Esquire. A number of years ago, about that one sort of horrifying but iconic shot of of someone who jumps from the World Trade Center and he's plummeting um, head down to earth, and what that story meant to the culture and how many people saw their loved ones in that photo. And it's it's a it's a it's 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 one of the most important stories that you will read to talk about what happened, not just in nine eleven, but to talk about to talk about people and what we see and what we need to believe. And very unfortunately, it's paywalled um, over at Esquire, but I'm sure you can find it if you look. He I also want to interrupt wrote- you. Oh, sorry. Yes. No, no, go for it. I-, I wanted to tell you that the headline of this story. Yes, please. And and why we're having trouble. There may be a shorter headline, but the reason we're having trouble is because it's quite long. The headline says, Before Jerry Sandusky, Penn State football had another serial sexual predator. This is the untold story of his crimes and the fight to bring him to justice. But scroll down a little. It says something called like repeat or something. There's like a one word. Go down a little further. So she's looking on her laptop right now because that's actually the name of the story. It's one word. And I, I, I guess I could find it. You know what? I'll find it. And I'll in a second when when Sarah's talking. Uh, the other story that that I know of Juno's is he wrote a piece called um, "My Friend Mr. Rogers" yeah. for the Atlantic, which is just go read it. It's a it's a beauty and it's a weeper. Um, anyway, he and another what is her name? Untold. Uh, Untold. Untold. That's the name of the story. And what I don't want to shortchange the the co-author whose Paula, byline I Paula Levine. Do you know her? Do you no. know her byline? I, I didn't don't. know her byline either. Anyway, the story I read a little bit about it it took 2 years to report and it um it takes an 
absolutely brutal series of crimes. And it looks, it's straight in the face. And it takes a long time with a lot of facets, with a lot of people from the women themselves intricately to the rapist himself, to the school administration, to uh, to um, Joe Paterno, the famous uh, uh, football coach at, at um, uh, Penn State. Penn State. It is it is by far uh, the best article I've read in several years uh, because it is so incredibly difficult, and yet they give it to you with as they give it to you with as much measure of of kind of calm and pacing as they can, and it is still on fire. It's like it's like a it's like a river of lava, and yet he is not. They the others right. are not are not trying to heat that up. It is what the story demands, and they took the time to do it. And um, I, you know, it could be this is what we do, and and maybe this is even why we have this podcast. <laughs> you know, I find it to be incredibly important work, what we can do if we do it, if we do it properly. And, um, and this is a story you guys should all go read. A few things struck me about this story. One of them was what you just identified, which was that it, there's never a point at which you push it's pushed. There's no pushing for results, which is a classic, uh, uh, ploy, both of this genre of sexual violence and also magazine journalism in general. Um, because you're pushing to get somebody to stay in. You, you want to grab them so fast. So this is a story that I love your description of a river of lava because what you you notice is that it just has a forward momentum that is separate from the story itself. Like Stephen King used to say, it's the story, not he who tells it. And this mm-hmm. definitely mm-hmm. had that kind of energy, that this was an unstoppable story. Um, the other thing that struck me, the, the the person whose name I've forgotten, the guy that's at the center of this piece, what's his name? The, the killer? Yeah. Todd Hodney. Hodney. Uh, never heard of him. Not going to no. remember his name. This guy is a sociopath. Uh, there is some attempt to explain how he got this way. I found that interesting. It's it's in the story, but it's not in his own point. words. In his own words. And you, and, and, you don't and, know if you know, and and yeah. like and like that is not the point of this story. This is a story about the wreckage that he he wreaked. Wreckage that he wreaked? What? Wreckage <laughs> that could be right. Havoc, havoc, that, he, that, he wreaked havoc that he wreaked or the, in wreckage the lives that he... and souls of individuals uh, at a time when somebody like him could operate quite under the radar. One of the things that strikes me about this is the true carnage and damage of this, the, the sexual violence in this. And what years are, is this uh, happening in? 70, uh, 78, 79. Okay. So. And maybe 80. Mm, uh, I think 78, 79. Gosh, yeah. that really hits me because, you know, like in the in the Cowboys world, in the DCC world, that was the high time of hedonism and rule breaking and the Cowboys were on top. And it was just like there was all this, you know, the sexual revolution had taken hold, but there were no rules to kind of 
govern its behavior. And so it was just this really reckless time. It was like a, a lot of fun for some people, but it was like really, really horrible for some other people. Anyway, um, so this is 78. This is not the Cowboys. This is Penn State. Um, but I say that because I think that the culture um, that is happening here where we're transitioning from the post-war, um, you know, separate co-ed dorms and girls have curfews and all this stuff. We're transitioning from that into a world more defined by equality and the sexual revolution. Uh, that enables people like this to do what they did. I mean, there was a, some real confusion around... Uh, you know, a lot of the women in these stories, they might want to have been sexual. They might want to have gone on dates. Uh, but at the same time, they didn't want to look like that kind of woman, quote unquote. And so, so anyway, what I mean to be setting up is that it's an, it's an incredibly interesting uh, anthropologically like pivot point in the late seventies where you're going from one culture into another culture. But what happens here is heinous. It's horrible. And I think that these kind of things that did happen to our mothers, uh, some of the women that were going to college in that era, that's what was getting triggered culturally in the Me Too movement. But see, interestingly enough, by the time Me Too came around, the infractions and the damage were so much more minor. So what you have to remember that marital rape is not a crime until the 80s. And the 70s are really like a date rape isn't a concept until the 90s. So the idea that you were raped by somebody on a date is like, no, sorry, you weren't. You were on a date with somebody. And and so, <coughs> excuse me, but by the time Me Too rolls around, rape has been reframed so that it's any foreign object in the vagina, meaning it could be a finger, meaning it could be a toothbrush. That's a, that's, I didn't randomly make that up. That's a, that's a Steubenville case. Um, and it could also, there's this issue of too drunk to consent. So anyway, I, I think I'm getting over my skis a little bit with my cultural commentary here. But what I mean to suggest is that the heinous, this, this story helps you understand, helps me understand why there was such an explosion of anger and fear around the idea of sexual violence on the college campus in documentaries like what I believe is sort of like a trumped up docu documentary called The Hunting Ground. And we can talk about this. We should do a whole episode on this whole thing because okay. it's very, it's very complicated. It's very easy to look like a, you know, a sort of rape apologist. I, I, I don't. People call me a rape apologist, and what I what can I say? I apologize for rape. I don't know. I like I. Somebody should. I don't. I don't know what it means. What I have been trying to do in my own career is to connect the dots, understand, illuminate, and amplify uh, the way that 
culture and sex and women's lives have moved and shapeshifted together. And so through that, one of the things that you see is that rape is a cultural construct. And it starts out as a property crime. And, you know, by the time, like, so, so in this era, when this is happening, these are, let me just finish this overlong thing and say, these are the kind of stories I think were being summoned in the, in the cultural imagination when you heard that one in four women was a victim of sexual assault or three in four or whatever the friggin' number seemed to be. The data seemed to suggest that those infractions were more like unwanted advances. Somebody touched my butt. But what was being summoned in the imagination were these stories like you hear in this astonishing ESPN piece where the women silently went through this this is the horrific stuff we hear of. Like when you hear that rape is the worst kind of crime, like this kind of stuff is what I think people are talking about. Okay, yeah, Sorry. and I'm good. Now that's fine because I'll I'll circle we'll circle back to that and then probably probably sum it up. But um, I'll, I'll just to Sarah ended exactly where I wanted to jump in was these particular crimes committed by Todd Hodney in in seventy eight seventy nine were the most unbelievably violent rapes. None of these women were on dates with this guy or even knew him. One like recognized him because he had been on the football team. Um, These were like ambushed at night in their homes, knives to their throat, you know, blindfolded, beaten. I mean, smacked in the head with heavy objects and lifelong pain because of it. These were terrible, terrible, terrible crimes. And one of the reasons, though, I think there were a variety of reasons he was allowed to kind of get away with it for a while, besides the fact that he was somewhat crafty about it, uh, was because he was on the football team and uh, they people kind of couldn't believe that he would do something like this. In any case, I wanted to just say one more thing about the way um, Junot and his co-writer put this together because – the, look, this Todd Hodney character, the the serial rapist who also winds up murdering someone in the story, um, is not. There is nothing about him that is sympathetic. Like you do not. There's nothing. There's nothing attractive about him. There's nothing. Even like, even if you wanted to be like, you know, bowled over by his football prowess, that's not even there. Even though I guess he was he was good at tackling people because of his all this anger he had. But I'm going to give. And I don't know, I'm sure it was deliberate because Juno is a freaking master. One thing he did was there was one point where he was, where they were laying out the crimes sort of like in these discrete chunks as opposed to like some, sometimes they talk for a very, very long time with the women and they go off and little estuaries and this and that. But there was this one era, it was like boom, 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 five different women, duck, 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 duck. And what it did, at least what it did for me was I was like, wow. And these crimes, they also, this is when he was out on Long Island after he was kicked out of school. They were so close together in terms of dates, because you got the dates of it's like, you know, April 13th, April 21st, or whatever. You realized, you saw, wow, this person had a terrible, terrible compulsion. I mean, a, a, a it, almost like someone that has like Tourette's and they can't stop from, ugh, from school. They can't do it. Like they can't stop it. He had some sort of, compulsion to do these absolutely awful things. And while I have absolutely no sympathy for this man, I have sympathy for someone who is absolutely captured 
by a compulsion that they cannot stop. Now, I could be wrong. Maybe he's just a total fucking dickhead prick who's doing this. But the way it was lined up, it showed you that like every four or five days, this guy popped. This is this is something that very few of us will have any, any familiarity with unless, of course, we too have compulsions that we cannot stop. You know, I don't know eating disorder, drinking, something. So it was it was interesting. And I thought that was the only time, I mean, even we, he, we have testimony from him. We have, you know, people saying other things. That was the only thing that in a sense almost humanized him for me was seeing how he could not, well, it's weird because it's like humanizing, but it's also making him like a robot. It was just a weird, it was a weird and for me effective way of showing me more who Todd Hodney was and what he was captured by. Um, It's a very very hard story to read. It's a very rough story, but there is one moment that I think moved both of us. And it, there are heroes in this story and there is a picture toward the end. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Sarah, see, I keep crying. I cry because when, when people show their humanity. So I don't know if I want to bust the moment for people. I mean, do I bust the moment for people? Are they going to go read Just go, just, I want them to know know. that it's not, because we've just gone on and on and on about how difficult this is. And I want people to know that even within this dark story, there are moments of absolute heart piercing sweetness and incredible we're both incredible. gonna cry i'm gonna cry too. incredible Let's incredible cry together it's kind of hot we're crying we're crying there's be a little crying in, in each episode um this but I, the last thing our podcast is about is two journo babes crying together how you many know, people but see, would listen to that i'm gonna Zero. be constantly commenting that but to, to laugh and then we'll maybe we'll just put a little put a little button on this because we're brushing up against our usual okay i have things, one thing to hold I on wait no no but i'll go but, up nope nope hold on it was because it's just ending with what you were saying one thing that this article also did for me you know we hear a lot about sort of the excesses of Title IX. Uh, we hear some things. It's like, oh, my God, like, how are you letting, like, this thing get away when you won't let, you know, this person defend himself or herself or whatever? Sarah's exactly right. When you read when you read a story like this, these are the cases that people, that, that they're, they're in the cultural bloodstream. And we remember these things or the people that are creating these laws or are trying to fight back against past injustices. You look at these stories and you're like, that this was not talked about is not okay. Now, have we overcorrected? Of course, because that's how people operate. Like they do bad things and then they overcorrect. But um, it made me it made me understand some of the excesses, excesses of Title IX in ways I didn't before. Same. So another effective thing from the article. Same. Okay, I want to tell sorry. you about an exploration that I took this morning. What'd you do, lady? Well, I wanted to know if either of us was shadow banned. And I don't I, really know what that means. I really don't know what that means. So well, it's just been like very what- nefarious. They don't really explain to you what it is. But I noticed in the days after my Atlantic piece, uh, I had been getting a lot of engagement on tweets, and all of a sudden, I was only getting one or two likes. It was just very okay. pronounced, and it was very strange. And so I was able to. You can like log out of Twitter, and you can search for your name. And if you don't see your name, then you've been shadow banned. That was true for okay. me, and it lasted okay. a couple days. Well, then okay. this morning, I learned that there's like a a site that you can go to and put in your name and it'll tell you whether or not you've been shadow banned. So I put in Sarah Heppola. Guess what? No shadow banned. Didn't think there had been one. Was getting quite a bit of engagement. Feeling a little popular on Twitter. So I decided hot. like a little bit hot. 
I decided to search for my friend and yours, Nancy Rommelman. Now <laughs> Everybody's this, friend. <laughs> this was interesting because Whoa. there is a search ban on your name. What? That means people are not allowed to search for my name? It means your name doesn't pop up when they search for it. So I on Twitter did, or just in general? On Twitter. So really? I did a little research on this. Okay. So what happens under a search ban is that Twitter removes all or simply the most recent of your tweets from search results, even if they contain the same search results used. So your your tweets are completely hidden from search results. What? This ranges from 12 hours to seven days. Now, how do you get rid of this? So these I'm going to call Elon. I'm calling Elon is what I'm doing. First of all, you need to sex with Elon. Now, like how quickly am I going to start sexting with Elon? If, if he's into that, I'm really You're not good. already doing it, lady. Catch I'm, up. I'm really good. Hurry up. Okay. Follow these simple steps to remove a shadow ban. Are you ready? Okay. I'm Num- ready. Number one, don't tweet. <laughs> Do not make the mistake of tweeting during your shadow ban period. Number two. Clear all social activity that you feel might have caused the shadow ban. Number three, check if you have picked the wrong interests. <laughs> I don't well, even obviously. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Baking. Number four. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> number four. Apparently, the wrong interest is like saving the democracy. That's but anyway, right. number four, contact the Twitter support team. Oh, okay. absolutely. That's okay. what I'm going to do. Now, this is somebody, I looked this up on Quora, which was that, that thing was from the internet. And then this is from Quora, which they tend to be like a little bit more like in a, intellectual people that, you know, tell you. So, so basically this person says you have to stop doing hashtags for like three days to a week, but it might take longer depending on how badly you abused the system. And I rarely use hashtags. So very rarely. Like, there's a lot of reasons. The problem is nobody actually really knows what causes you to be shadow banned. And this is one of the things that is invisible and super frustrating about the way Twitter runs itself right now. Um, So one of the things that this story brought up is that uh, if you share a GIF that is the same GIF, Twitter will flag you as a bot and you will be shadow banned. Um, and so. Uh, also not. I, I got to tell you. I also don't do that that much. I probably post like one GIF every three weeks. I've done that once. Um, I, I, I had this like Dorothy Boyd in Jerry Maguire saying. I will go with you. And I did that like twice. Because I thought it was funny. Because they're two different people. But this is saying. Uh, this this Plus also. You know how, how often we don't do it. They're actually called GIFs. Right. Isn't that right? Well, they're called GIFs, but uh, the twenty-something started making fun of me for using that. Good. So I, I like said twenty-somethings, and yeah, yeah, the the twenty-somethings. We should have some on the pod because they are Absolutely. hilarious, and they God, they do not give a shit, and they're so funny, and yeah. Anyway, we need more funny, but it's. So this is uh, the woman points out that this is this is not a lot of times shadow bans are not. We tend to take them personal. This is actually the result of a faulty algorithm that takes away your right to free speech in an effort to stop obnoxious people from bugging other users with incessant marketing scams and other types of harassment. Well, I mean, that's, you, my, that's my brand, Sarah. I know it is. What am I, I going to do? I, you, my friend, are just collateral damage. That's true. So I don't know what we're going to do about the shadow ban on your account, Nancy. But well, uh, 
You know, I I have so many other things to do. I'm not going to worry about it. I like that I, the I mean, number I, one I, thing to do was don't tweet, which yeah, is just not right. going to happen for you. Yeah, I, I like I literally didn't know what shadow banning was ten minutes ago, so I'm not going to worry about it too much now. So, um, yeah, because you know what? Because you know what, Sarah Heppler, we have other things to do today. I do. I have a friend coming in from London, <clears throat> and uh, we're going to go eat at one of my favorite restaurants in town here called Rosella. Oh, mm. nice. I'm jealous. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm going to do Megan Murphy's uh, podcast show. Megan Murphy was banned from Twitter. So mm. I, I think maybe I, I heard her on Megan. You better Downs not tweet about it. Better not. No, tweet about I'm the not saying her, her. I'm not putting her words in my mouth. Yeah, yeah. Her, I'm, no, I'm just no, saying wait. like her name in my mouth. I was trying to make a Will Smith. What reference, did we start? It ended up we, strange. Hey, do you want to say anything about Elon Musk? No, not today. I think another enough people are talking about Elon Musk. I, I'm kind of excited about. I've been excited about it since the beginning. I mean, it's Twitter. It's going to be interesting, or it's going to be. Who knows what it's going to be? I'm interested. I've I, always been curious from the moment I heard about it. I don't know so, what's going on, but he is really kind of entertaining me on Twitter. And I don't know if who's writing his tweets, but he said he was also going to buy Coke and add the cocaine. Oh, back add in. the cocaine. He's he's getting sort of like he's just poking them in the eye right now because he can. I so. dig it. All right. I'm, I kind of, I don't know. You know, we talked about fast emotional metabolism. It just seems like stories are just moving so fast now. It's like, okay, he bought Twitter. What's next? What's next? What oh my God, you're next? already over the Depp Heard thing, which is honestly like the I'm most heart rending story of our age. And you are like, I'm yawn sorry. next. I'm not yawning. I just, I'm so excited about other things, Sarah Heppola. What are you excited about? Um, I'm excited about the next time we we talk, which will be in three or four days. I'm excited about an essay you're going to write for our little site, and I'm excited about smoke them if you got them in general. And uh, actually, uh, some also some articles I'm going to write, including some a, a crazy thing I saw the other day. So uh, let's just put that on the uh, on the side burner. You know, somebody uh, kept accidentally looking for our podcast by calling it the Smoke Show. I know it's pretty good. Which pretty I good. immediately was like, that is such a good name. <sighs> a missed opportunity. But I think also people would be like, smoke, like how much weed shit? Well, I don't care that if we get sounds weed, like, weed A, that sounds like a total us. weed show. <laughs> B, that is doubling down on my hotness in a way that I'm not sure I can yeah. really continue to uh, yeah, produce I don't know the goods I, for. Exactly. And, you know, I have my moments, but like, I don't know how much I want to. I want to really yeah. uh, lay Advertise my chips it. on that table, that that number on the table, and uh, but I just I love the smoke show is a really friggin' cool name, but you know so what? So is smoke them if you got them. Yeah, but everybody, come back, uh, come back in a couple of days for the next episode of the smoke show. Uh, or what no, we call it? no, yeah. we're not calling. No, no, it. smoke them if we got them. Um, Sarah Hepla, it was lovely to see you this morning. Nancy Rommelman, I miss you already. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. Bye, everyone. Bye. Rise up from your deep sleep.